Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. My name is Rahul Ravipudi. And I'm Ben Gideon. Ben, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well, Raul. Since the last time we spoke, I've been uh, to North Carolina and back to drop my oldest son off for uh, college at Wake Forest. And that was quite a momentous experience for all of us. How have you been? Been good, but I want to ask a little bit more about that. Is this your first um, bird leaving the nest? He is. Yeah, so it was it was uh, it was a little bit rough. Uh, there were some tears shed. I think my advice to other parents that are bringing kids to college is don't drive 15 hours uh, because by the time we got there, everybody's nerves were a little bit frayed. Our son really didn't want us around anymore, and so the it was a little bit of a, uh, an unpleasant parting of the ways. And it would have been nicer if everybody was kind of uh, fresh and happy at that moment. It, it didn't have that kind of uh, positive vibe that I was hoping when we dropped him off uh, for the next chapter of his life. Did he text later? Yeah, so he doesn't respond to many texts or uh, entreaties for conversation. I think he's happy to be independent for a little while. But, you know, it's interesting. You remember back to when we went to school, there were no cell phones. So I didn't talk to my folks. I don't know about you. No. Just uh, every, and everything was charged by the minute, also. So it was very short conversations, even when we were on the phone. True. So, how are things in your world? You've had some good uh, case settlement results, I know. Yeah, no, everything's been moving along, and you know the court system is opening up, and um, and so that's actually been really good for us in in both preparing cases and gearing up for trial and for getting cases resolved. Today's Elevate podcast is brought to you by the Expert Institute. I've been talking a lot about how we use Expert Institute to find experts for our cases, and that's a great service they provide. But I want to talk for you for a minute about other ways in which we're able to use Expert Institute that goes beyond just locating experts. One of the great services that Expert Institute provides is that it has a whole team of in-house experts that are there to consult with us about our cases, even if we already have experts or we haven't yet located experts to work on the case. For example, if I have a case where I'm not really sure whether to move forward on it or not, and it requires an answer to a specific medical question, I can send it off to the Expert Institute. They can find an expert in the right medical subspecialty, and then I can get on the phone with them to talk through the case and get their feedback about it without having to go out and hire an expert just to conduct a case review. That saves me time, it saves me money, and ultimately allows me to make better choices about the cases I take and move forward. And if there's a case that I'm not gonna take, I'm able to tell my client that I had it reviewed by a doctor before we decided uh, that we couldn't help them. So it's a great additional service beyond just expert location that Expert Institute provides. If you're interested in working with them, I would suggest that you uh, check them out on the website at Expert Institute. If you go to Expert Institute forward slash Elevate, E-L-A-W-V-A-T-E, you can uh, get a 25% off discount for your first expert consult. Our show today is also brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is a robust database program used for case management. We manage our entire practice with Smart Advocate, everything from intake all the way through closing and distribution of funds in the case is managed through Smart Advocate. It's got great systems for shortcutting the entry of information, which saves your staff time and makes makes it more productive. It uh, generates thousands of of letters, uh, email templates. We text our clients directly from Smart Advocate. We use their uh, version of a DocuSign system to have our clients sign all of the important paperwork electronically, saving us a lot of time. So it's really been a great program for us, great system. It's all cloud-based. At least the version we use is cloud-based, which we really like encourage you to check them out if you need case management software uh, at smartadvocate.com. And our show is also being brought to you by Hype Legal. That's a full-service digital marketing and web design firm. 
They do terrific work. They designed all of our graphics for the Elevate podcast. They just launched the company less than a year ago, but have already launched marketing campaigns and websites for a whole bunch of successful law firms. You can check them out at their site, HypeLegal, H-Y-P-E-L-E-G-A-L.com. This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Ravipudi. That actually segues perfectly into our guest for today, which is Dan Ambrose. Dan, how are you? Great. I'm out here in Las Vegas with our mutual friend, Sean Claggett. He told me how you were so kind to answer his phone calls when you were in Europe on some trial strategy situations since he just finished, just got a verdict yesterday. It was really exciting to be there and kind of like, in a way, be in the war room for the last couple of few days of trial and be in the courtroom. It's a, it's a really great experience for any trial lawyer. It's in, in, in the evolution of growing. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. And it, it also is enjoyable when you do the right thing for your client and you got a monster verdict. And it's it's fantastic for him and for his clients and for the judicial system. So it's great. Yeah. I mean, like his client's like a profile in courage, though, because she lost her baby. She's a you know, at least she's an immigrant, doesn't speak English. And, you know, the trial was going well. He was crushing them and they offered 15 million and, you know, his client turned it down said, no, you know, we went the verdict. That takes more courage than I know I got. I, I'm both the lawyer and the client's part. How many lawyers would have said, you know what, we can't guarantee anything's going to happen. You know, this is a lot of money. 99% of lawyers would have taken that. And a wrongful death of 11-year-old, you know, and so that's just a profile in courage in my, in my world. But anyways, so that was a really great experience yesterday. And now I'm actually going to, I'm still in Vegas today because I'm going to his office because he's doing a work group with a friend of mine that, you know, that's scheduled to start a workshop with him like for three days starting on Monday, but the trial obviously extended itself. (laughs) It moved our work schedule around a little bit, but it's such a like testament to who Sean Claggett is. He just finished this long month and a half trial, but you know, this guy's here. So he's still gonna, you know, him and Jordan are still gonna do their consulting with him for today and tomorrow, even though you imagine how exhausted you would be after a month and a half of trial. I, I mean, like a month in trial and the month, two months leading up to it. I mean, that's just insanity. But, you know, it's kind of a, you know, kind of who the guy is. So it's pretty cool being out here. It's a little easier to do that after you win, though, when, oh, than God. if you had lost. I couldn't even imagine if he lost. I'd be like, all right, I'm going home. <laughs> I can't imagine anybody being in the mood to work. But, but that's, you know, it's a confidence game. Well, Dan, let's talk a little bit about how you ended up in Vegas by flashing back a number of years. So I know you started out in Michigan as a criminal defense lawyer um, had over 150 jury trials, uh, did the uh, Jerry Spence Trial Lawyer College, and then started to really, really, really study the practice of trial law and trial litigation uh, more than, honestly, more than anybody I've ever seen, and, uh, and started to develop your own method of being an effective advocate and tell us just a little bit about how you transitioned from having all this trial experience and then wanting to learn more and then uh, specializing in this area and where it took you. Well, back in about two, it's about nine years now that um, a friend of mine from the Trial Lawyers College invited me to come out here. I've come out to Vegas to watch him present at Kella. And I didn't know what it was. I'm like, I don't have time for this stuff. He's like, just come out and see it. Cause it was his first time presenting. So we were friends since 2005. And so I came out to Cala and I started meeting people and I was like, wow, this is like a whole different energy than being a criminal defense lawyer in Michigan. And honestly, I mean, these people look like they make a lot of money and I just don't think they're that much better of a lawyer than I am. And, you know, I never, because in Michigan, it's just so different. There's just no, there's no plaintiff's bar. I mean, it's like a couple of people that advertise a lot and most people don't really make much of a living. And so... What, what is Cala? Consumers Attorneys of Los Angeles. It's like the biggest trial lawyers of a convention event, I think, in the country. And it happens every Labor Day weekend. Like, I'm in Vegas right now. I'm flying home tonight, but I'm flying back here next Wednesday for Cala. And I'm sure, Rahul, you're coming to Cala too. Absolutely. Right. It's just a great time. And uh, 
And so I decided to move to California. But when I got to California, I didn't really know anybody. I only know a few people. And so I started doing like little work groups at my apartment. A, to keep, you know, I had to pass, I'd take study the bar and, and passed for the bar. And that took a few years, I took a couple of years. So by doing these little work groups at my apartment, I was kind of developing this methodology, trying to figure out what they were doing at the trial lawyers college. Cause like some of the stuff was valuable. I thought some, of, I thought so much of it was just nonsense and waste of time that, you know, I'd see people come back there year after year for the grad programs and not get any better. And I just thought there was a lack of methodology you know, if you like, if you're playing a sport, your coach doesn't say, just do whatever feels right. You know, whatever, whatever's good for you is good for us. I'm like, how is that? No, like you practice, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over and over until you could do it without thinking. And that's what, you know, muscle memory is. That's what, you know, the road to mastery is. And, and, uh, you know, and started in my apartment. And then I did this, taught this workshop for about five or six years called Trojan Horse Method, which, you know, had a lot of good things to it, but I didn't know what I didn't know at the time. And, what I didn't know was so much that had to do with actual, you know, trials, especially civil trials, most complex things I've ever seen. So much going on, so many moving parts, so much long-term preparation. And, you know, and, and in the last year and a half, by doing these webinars with the greatest trialers in the country and, you know, working with them and seeing how they break down their trials and see their trial strategy and the decisions they make, whether it's sequencing of witnesses, whether it's, you know, the order of how you present a plaintiff or, you know, you know, setting up the voir dire, you know, the structure of opening and closing, like at Rahul's firm, I've done programs with several different people on closing argument and every closing argument in their firm basically has the same structure. It's like, you know, you could just follow, you know, connect the dots and because that's the structure that works for them. And, you know, and so just seeing all this stuff, I just learned so much. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to continue to learn too, because being in the courtroom is where you learn. And obviously if I was in trial myself, I'd learn more. But since I'm not in trial, since I, was, I could do is sit on the peripherals and kind of be with the lawyers as they're preparing their cross and sit there and, you know, in the courtroom and, and watch and kind of make notes and learn. It's just been a really great experience. I, I've seen reference to, to the Trojan horse method. I, I've never um, looked into that or understood what it is. Are you able to explain to us without uh, disclosing proprietary secrets, kind of what, what that is? Sure. And, and it, you, it sounds like you've evolved beyond that, but... Um, what what is the Trojan horse method? Well, I really developed it because so many lawyers really lacked in their presentation skills. I mean, it's one thing to be able to litigate. It's one thing to take a deposition. But to get up and be able to tell a story that moves an audience, because I think the goal of a trial lawyer is to make the jury feel what your client felt, is total you know empathy, but also to be able to witness the event. Because if you can make the jury witnesses, then, they, then you'll have to argue. They know what happened. It's obvious. And great trial lawyers, you know, tell stories that transport the audience so they no longer get bored. They're like, it's like a movie. So it's basically a system of repetitive different types of movements because when people talk, you know, and talk about experiences from their own life, their hands are always moving. Their facial expressions are changing to match the facial expressions of the people. Their voices are often changing to match the tone or emotion of the, the people that you're referring to. And this is how we all tell stories. But so many times when a lawyer gets up there in front of people, I mean, most lawyers, especially, you know, less experienced, they, they start to get nervous. That nervousness makes them look robotic and feel robotic. And there's no connection. Whereas, um, you know, when you, when you can learn to imagine the story and you no longer, and, and kind of develop presence. I mean, it's all about presence too. And as you get more confident, you get more comfortable, you get more presence. And then your story, you know, you look like, oh, it looked like a natural. I mean, there really are no naturals. Everybody, it's a great trial lawyer, worked long and hard at it and had maybe previous experiences in life, whether it be in college athlete, things where they were in front of people and they, and they thrive on the energy of being in front of people as opposed to being in their office and on the, on the Zoom call. And there's just so much difference between being live and a video. It's really just a, a, a and, we, and we record the person and kind of break it down. And that's where it all started. But with the last 18 months, I've taken what I used to do, combined with what I've learned now, and kind of developed like a three-day program. Like the first day is just presentation skills using visuals like the foam core board, the PowerPoint, the document camera, the flip chart, and the physical model. And kind of moving from one, you know, with, within the strict context of an opening statement. And then the second day is just voir dire and basic pattern voir dire, especially that because I work with a lot of lawyers as you know, kind of consulting on their cases. And one thing I noticed that so many lawyers, even most lawyers, I'd say is when they first stand up, trying to get that initial connection with the jury, that initial relationship, because you don't get that initial relationship in two or three minutes, 
it can be awkward for a long time until it gets, you know, warmed up. And, and it's like, everybody's got their thing, but some people's things just don't work that well, you know, and it's, you know, and I've just seen it over and over, but without somebody there to give them a better way and a better method, they just keep doing it because it worked for them. Regardless of how well it's working or not, if they get a good re- a result that's positive, it was working. Whereas, you know, the, the $500,000 verdict maybe could have been $2 million verdict with a better jury connection, you know, because one thing I've learned in the last 18 months with all the great trial lawyers, that's it's all about the connection with the jury. That's it. They're always monitoring that connection with the jury. Where's the jury? Where's the jury? Not where's my case at? Not how much do I need from this witness? Is the jury getting it? Let's let's talk about the the last 18 months. Uh, I think the timing of that has to do in large part with the start of the pandemic and everything locking down. A lot of people in the legal community, and I'm going to say in the broad legal community, just kind of didn't know what to do and actually paused with the uh, with the lockdowns. Dan, you're not one of those people, and I think that you kind of saw an opportunity for you to grow as a as a lawyer and as an educator and to learn and an opportunity to to teach others. How did you pivot from the Trojan horse method into doing things virtually? And then how did you make that work? Well, I started with a case analysis, and the first one I ever did was with Chris Dolan, I think about two or three years ago, San Francisco. Might have been three years ago because we lost a year and a half. And so I started like trying to like figure out how the lawyer put the, you know, all the strategy moves they, they made. And so we did these one day analysis of a, of a verdict. And I do, I did them probably, did probably seven or eight of them on different cases with different lawyers. And, and people really liked them. I mean, usually have like 50 or 60 or 70 people come for the day. And then the pandemic came along. And I was scheduled to do a program just the following week in LA, but the pandemic came along and it was like a, a, a punch right in the side of my head because I lost everything. I lost doing live workshops. I lost a case analysis and I lost consulting. I lost actually doing trying cases. So I had nothing to do. And I had, because I had no case files to work on. So I had absolutely nothing to do. And I was at home by myself, you know, really isolated. And that was rough too. And I, and, uh, a buddy of mine came over, Ari Moss, and we were looking at CVN, Court Review Network, and watching some trial on there. And I was making some comment on, you know, what the presenter was doing. He's like, you know, he's like, you should do like a play-by-play of, you know, trials and stuff. I'm like, and it kind of like floated in my brain. And then a friend of mine, whose name is uh, Brad Eggenberg out of New Orleans, you know, when it, when this first happened, like three days into it, he calls me up. He's like, Ambrose, this is the time when real business is done. Like, what are you talking about? It's like, it's like, now is the time to ask yourself, you know, how do you want your Trojan horse program case analysis to be positioned in people's minds compared to, you know, trial lawyers college or reptile or trial by human or all these different programs out there. He's like, he's like, you know, you have a chance to really serve your community here. And if you can figure out something to do, because this shit is going to end one day. And when it does, you know, people are going to remember who did something for them you know, in these darkest of times. And I was like, well, what should I do? And he's like, dude, I don't know that. He's like, I'm just trying to tell you what you need to do. I don't, I'm telling you, I'm trying to give you the end result, what you want to look like at the end. I'm not quite sure how to get there. <laughs> you want me to do everything for you? And I'm like, well, and so he keeps sending me like articles of companies doing stuff, even sending me something, he sent me something like Pornhub was giving free porn in India and, you know, as to like to help people through the pandemic. So he's like, you got to figure out something. And then it was like kind of that, I think that came first. And then my friend Ari, Ari Moss was over and he was just, we were talking and I'm like, and then the next day I, uh, or maybe even, yeah, the next day I, I re- replayed the first Chris Dolan program that we did a case analysis on and there was like 60 people on. And then the next day, Sean Claggett came on and broke down one of his videos. And then after that, he's like, I'm like, who else can we get? And he's like, I am like, I know Rex Paris from Trialers College. He doesn't much care for me, but it can't hurt to ask him. He's like, well, he did that case with Panish. I kind of know Panish, so I'll give Panish a call. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. So then, like, with a week, Panish and Paris were on, and then they were on a lot, and you know, it just kind of went from there. And, and and I really had to work out my like, uh, I, I I wasn't the best host to start with, but I, I think I've developed into a better host of these programs than I used to be. I got a question going back to your comments about connecting with the jury, and you talked about doing that early on in voir dire. Uh, what uh, techniques do you uh, do you advocate for to do that? I mean, I, I I've done some different things in, in different cases to kind of do the the icebreaker, talking about people's you know passions or 
um, what do they what do they have for you know pictures on their on their screensaver and just getting people talking about things that they are personally passionate about or um, connected to and I found it that can work okay um, but I'm curious what you do what what do you recommend well I think the passion question is great if you can do it like if you can do the passion question and you can have a nice conversation for a few minutes with each juror about what turns them on and you know especially it's like you know somebody's like talks about maybe tennis being their passion and what do you love the most about it and you know do you ever go to watch tournaments or anything like that and then you know say and, and you're like who else who else is pretty passionate about tennis? Maybe it's not their top one, but they really love tennis too. And then they get to form a little group with the people around them. So I think that's a great one. But in so many places, the judges, I, judges wouldn't let you do that because it's just like, we're not going to spend a fucking hour, you know, having a passion question. And so, and so when, when you can't do that, and if you can, you know, just, I really believe in having scripts because each word does have meaning. And if you know what you're going to say and you practice saying it, you know, for example, an, an example of that would be when, you know, you first stand up. So let's say just first stand up and the judge has done all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, good morning, everybody. As you all just heard, my name is Dan Ambrose. And I don't know if any of you have ever had the experience of, you know, meeting a whole bunch of new people at the same time, you know, like at a party or something. But if you're, you know, if you're anything like me and don't have to be blessed with a photographic memory, you know, you might on occasion forget somebody's name. And I'm going to do my best to remember yours. I even got this little sheet right here to help me. But if on a, if I do make a mistake and, you know, and call you by the wrong name, would, would, everybody be, would everybody here be comfortable correcting me and saying, hey, Dan, my name's X, not Y. You know, w- would y'all be willing to do me this favor? And so, of course, everybody's going to nod, right? But that one piece of voir dire had so many, like, honestly, like, yes. Uh, you know, because, like, for example, I'm echoing with the, the judge. I'm just reintroducing myself. That's polite. And I'm saying, you know, I don't know how many of you ever had the experience, you know, so that's a soft opening up because now they're thinking what experience, and you, pa- you know, a teaching, pausing and pacing experience where we met a whole bunch of new people at the same time. And like at a party, like now they're reversing roles with me because now they know I just met 14 people at the same time and they can't remember anybody's name. You know, I met a whole bunch of new people at the same time. But if you're anything like me, so now I'm taking them into, you know, to, to, you know, like we're just like one another. I'm just regular and don't have to be blessed with a photographic memory. Well, that's neither, neither are they, you know, you might on occasion f- forget somebody's name. Well, that happens to everybody. Right. And so it's, and, you know, and I'm gonna do my best to remember yours. Now it's a pivot. And I even got this little sheet here, but if I do make a mistake, cause I'm only human like you and happy to call you by the wrong name, would everybody here feel comfortable correcting me and saying, Hey Dan, my name is X, not Y. And now it's like, we're friends. You call me my first name. There's nothing formal here. You know, would y'all be willing to do me this favor? And like, you know, Ben, ben Franklin says, you know, to get a man indebted to you, ask him to do you a favor, right? And so now you just joined a little group around you. And then, you know, so that's what I mean by like rapport. Because I'd like the next set is, you know, and now we need to ask you some questions about your opinions, beliefs, and experiences. So we can help you decide if this case is the right case for you. Would this be okay with everybody? So now I just gave a roadmap of what we're doing and I'm, I'm empowering them. I'm not saying we're going to try to judge you. We're going to see if you're right for this case. No, we're going to let you decide if this case is the right case for you, will this be okay to everybody? And then you know, ask these rhetorical questions and you look around and connect with each person. So this way you don't get in trouble for not asking questions. You know, you're, you're like building consensus because now we're all in agreement. Yep, this is all good for us. And then, you know, cause then the next line after that is, and the truth is not every case is right for every juror. And that's why, that's why we take so much time going through this process. And that's why the judge read us a long list of potential witnesses, introduced us to the, to the parties and to the lawyers. I mean, can you imagine if you knew one of the witnesses or maybe you're friends with one of the parties or one of the lawyers? Can we all see this could cause a potential bias? Does everybody know what I mean by bias? So now we start to interchange where people start saying, Rahul, how would you define bias? Then whatever Rahul says, I would say, Ben, you heard Rahul say, blah, blah, blah. Would you tend to agree with him? What might you add? So it's just this quick, simple, like after, after that bias question comes, you know, brutal honesty and and that's it. Now we go into whatever the more substantive things are. But with those things, it's gentle. It's ramping it up, the, the connection. And it's all positive. You know what I mean? As opposed to when somebody says, how many people got that, you know, summons the mail and we're like, you know, and didn't really want to be here. You know what I mean? Or whatever, something that's like a negative connotation or, you know, this process is really long and difficult. And but we're trying to make it, you know, making it hard that already like communicate, this is going to be hard causing, you know, because I think it's all about trying to lower the cognitive load in the in the jury's head. So I hope that answered your question, Ben. It was a little bit of a longer, but if without, you know, demonstrating it, an explanation doesn't quite work, I don't think. Yeah, no, that was really helpful. And I can see why that's so effective. You're doing so many different things all together there, but in a way that one might not appreciate all the different things you've accomplished through that very simple but effective uh, 
beginning there. I mean, you're also presenting yourself as maybe the antithesis of what they expect as the know-it-all, powerful trial lawyer. You're a human. You have foibles. You're vulnerable. You're a little bit nervous because you're not going to remember everybody's names. There's That works on so many levels. I, I, I get that. That's really good. Good stuff. Well, thanks. Um, I think it, you know, I think it works because it is subtle. It's simple. And, but, but, you know, the reality is, is that for it to work well, you know, people have to really take the time to, to memorize, you know, and so many times lawyers are just like so lazy or they're like, Oh, if I memorize, I'll be stilted. And I'm like, no, if you memorize, if you, if it's even graded, then you're free because the patterns just flow with you and you don't worry about what's going to happen. You know, I mean, until, until you can get to like the super high level where it's like, you just trust it's going to come to you because you've done it so many times. Like, you know, like, like a Brian Panish, you know, like he does, I can't imagine him writing a closing argument word for word, but he has his stuff and he kind of like has his thing and, and, and it works for him. Right. You know, and like working with Sean Claggett, you know, he kind of has a similar process of, you know, putting his closing arguments together. You know, he doesn't write things out, but you know, we do work on some word selection stuff because like, you know, he's like, you know, and they admitted blah, 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 blah on the stand. I'm like, you know, because it was a guy that finally admitted that he shouldn't have made the turn and run the poor child over. And I'm like, maybe she should use the word confessed. I think confessed has a better connotation. He goes, oh, I like that, confessed. Finally, he confessed. <laughs> so one of the things that, uh, and just kind of taking some of the, the case titles that you've got, you've got your chosen Trojan horse method, you've got case analysis, and then when that pivoted into being an online uh, virtual um, mechanism, what you did, if I understand it right, is you were kind of like the host. You'd have a bunch of people on, and you'd have the person who actually tried the case with their videos of the trial. And then you would literally dissect questions, answers, and cross-examination in the opening statement, pause for a moment, and try to figure out why that lawyer did what they did. But the one thing that you're no shrinking violet. So then you'd come in and then you'd actually critique whether it's Brian, Sean, uh, Chris Dolan, whoever it is that was uh, the guest that day. You'd actually critique them and tell them all the things they actually could have done better. How did, how did, you, how did you develop that format? And how did you feel comfortable critiquing all of these really good civil trial lawyers on how they could be better? Well, you know, I think because I, I spent so much time like um, studying presentation and, you know, and I would meet with the, the lawyers beforehand and I'd say, hey, I think that if you did this like this, for example, when you have a, a, a PowerPoint behind you that you're referencing, you know, some of these lawyers would stare at the screen on the ground in front of them and they're reading it there, but they want the jury to pay attention back there. It doesn't make any sense. Where if they just pivot and look at it and read it at the same time, then they're going to control the direction, the glance of where the jury's going. And and so I would meet with all the lawyers beforehand, whether it was Mark Lanier or Brian or Greg or Keith, and I'd say, hey, this is what I would suggest. What do you think? They're like, oh, you know, that's a great point. She so says, okay, if I comment on it, oh, no, I want you to comment on it. And so it was all, I think it had a lot to do with, you know, having a relationship beforehand. And, you know, and doing it in a way that said, hey, you're the winning trial lawyer. I'm not. I'm just here to make observations and help people to understand what you're doing and, you know, what could be done differently that may or may not have a better, you know, result. That's your call. But, you know, to give people an option, I could do it A, I could do it B, I could do it C. And, you know, but by presenting it that way, I think it made it really easy for people to, you know, take the comments and not be like defensive. Whereas, you know, maybe if I, if it wasn't presented that way, it might be people a little bit more defensive. And, and the reality is that every great trial lawyer that I've interviewed or looked at, they're, they're always like, oh yeah, I could have done that better. I could have done that better. They're always looking at, you know, matter what they got, like to get better, you know I mean? Like Claggett's firm, they got a, you know, a debriefing on Monday. He just got the biggest verdict of his life, but they want to know all the mistakes they made, all the things they could have done better because, you know, like they should have gotten a, couple hundred million dollars in punitives, but the jury, the, the uh, verdict form was all messed up. And so, but these are little, you know, they fought hard, but what are you going to do? You know, if the judge makes a mistake, you know, he's like, well, the upside is we'll probably get paid the, the 45 million and, 
you know, and, and, and they'll avoid their appeal and, you know, the family will go on and, you know, and life will be what it is and you learn from your mistakes. And so, but I think just doing all that preparation ahead of time too. And, and I think also the presenters knew or know like how, you know, dedicated I am to trying to make them look good to make, you know, I always consider myself, you know, we're teaching together, but I've tried my, I consider always myself, you know, whoever's on my show, I'm kind of like your marketing representative because I want you to, you know, I want you to look good, but I also want you to, you know, if somebody didn't look good, and like I had a meeting with them ahead of time, and the, like I thought that honestly, I thought that their presentation was shit. I thought the story, I was like, this is, I'd just be like, you know what, we need to work on this some more. <laughs> We're going to reschedule this for like a month out because, because then they're always like, they're, they're always, those, those kind of lawyers are always like, ah, this is too much work. I'm like, yeah, it's too much work. You don't want to, you don't want to go through this nonsense. And so, uh, you know, it, so I think that that's, I guess, uh, having that meetings and spending a time ahead of time is really important to, to be able to do that stuff. Cause people all the time were like, you could treat Brian Panish or Mark Lanier. It's like, you got a lot of guts. Like, who are you? I'm like, I'm not anybody. I'm just having an opinion and sharing it with them. And you know, if they, if they agree, they agree. If they disagree, that's fine. But it's just a matter of different, of a, you know, viewpoints, different ways of trying things. And you know, people almost, every, I don't, everybody was gracious. There was nobody that ever was like, who the hell are you talking to me? You know? which have been kind of weird. So, so if you, you've obviously had an opportunity to watch and critique uh, a number of the uh, great trial lawyers out there today and to think a lot about how lawyers present cases to juries, given that background, if you were going to boil it down to summarizing what are the qualities and traits that make those lawyers so successful versus others who are less successful? What would you say about that? The ones that are most successful, they, I mean, one thing that, that they all have, the most successful ones, they have a great team. And they, you know, they, they orchestrate it. They're great leaders. They're like coaches. So that's one thing, like on the really, you know, the, the, like the bigger cases. Um, another thing I think that really makes the great ones great is their presence. Is there a level of confidence in what they're doing? And I think that comes from a level of preparation and their belief in the story they're telling. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think that would kind of boil it down. Is, is, and, and they work hard. They, they, they work so hard. Like, the, you know, that. And I only know that, I mean, I, the work, the hard work stuff, I, you know, I worked with, you know, Brian. I, I worked with Brian a little bit on a trial that he had or a couple of trials that he had. So I got to see you know, the work that he did with, you know, Sonia and, and Adam Shea and Gunny out there in uh, San Bernardino and, uh, you know, and then the work on that motorcycle case. So, you know, they work really hard. I mean, this is not, and you have to sacrifice a lot. You know, I mean, you sacrifice a lot to be a trial lawyer. You sacrifice family time. You sacrifice sometimes your health, you know, you're trying to find balance. But especially when there's a trial, I mean, people disappear for months you know, from their family and their family has, and you know, and they, and they have to, you know, if you don't have a supportive partner, like you're in big trouble, you know, because you can't possibly focus hard on a trial if somebody's causing you to have guilt for not being around instead of being, you know, trying to, you know, handle that part of it. So I'd say those are a few of the components. I don't know if I answered your question, Ben, from the things I've seen. No, you, you did. I mean, what, what I've always struck by having done this for a long time and different settings is that, people that have been very successful at doing this often are quite different from one another. You know, if you, if you compared, say, a, a Rick Friedman's style and personality to Brian Panish, they're totally different people. And everybody you've described is quite different from one another, but yet they can succeed. So there's not just one approach that is required. But there are commonalities like the things you've described that that are a thread that run through all of those folks. But it but it is interesting that you don't have to be a certain, you don't have to conform to a certain type of mold. Um, you can be yourself in your authentic self and still succeed uh, as long as you have the drive and the work ethic and the desire and the other things you've identified. Yeah, I mean that's. Being, of course, being yourself is the most critical thing, and being comfortable. But the, the, but that's so easy to say. But when you're scared to death, or you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars of your money on the line, and it's like, 
And I mean, that makes it harder to be yourself. And, or if you're not fully prepared, if you're not, if you're not super, super extremely prepared, you can't really be yourself because you're not going to be comfortable. You're going to be nervous. It's just the way life is. And so that being yourself comes from the hard work, the long hours, the preparation and, you know, the finding, you know, the finding and getting more comfortable with your own voice. And, you know, because you're right. There's a big difference between like a Rick Friedman and a, a Brian Panish and a Nick Rowley and a Rahul Rabaputi. I mean, those are very four different, you know, stereotypes of, or, or are different lawyers, but, but, you know, they, they, and they approach the case with their personality, with their mindset. You know, some people are more compassionate than others. Some people are more, you know, aggressive. Like I'm going to be like a gladiator. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kill you as opposed to like, I'm going to love you. We're going to love this person, you know? And it's like, it, 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 you know, it's crazy, you know? And, and like how these people are starting to figure out like verdict numbers too is the craziest thing too, because like this weekend or, you know, the weekend of August 27th, 28th, we're doing a, a live trial lawyers university. I just, decided to do it two weeks ago. And so, but I got like Dan Kramer, who's a good friend of mine and been a big contributor here. He just got his first eight figure verdict of like $12.6 million on a premises case that is offered 250,000 on. And then that afternoon, Christian Morris, who I know is a friend of Rahul's, but she got a $31 million verdict in Las Vegas here during the, these are all like within the last three months on a, a poor girl that suffered a peanut allergy and went into some type of anaphylactic shock and just became a vegetable. And it was like an eight year old case too. And, you know, so she's going to be doing like a case analysis, like the voir dire, the opening statement, the closing argument, and then kind of, you know, have a discussion at each one, but she's actually going to demonstrate it. And then on Saturday, um, Saturday is uh, Eric Fong. He got a $91 million verdict on a premises case. And that was his, all three of these lawyers, first eight figure verdicts. And I've never had an eight-figure verdict. I've never had a seven-figure verdict. But I, but I believe that there's a different that you know it kind of changes, in a way, of, you know who a lawyer is and who their belief in themselves is when they're able to create the you know persuade the a, a, another group of the value of human life, and and really you know and really give it value and not you know because like what something's worth, you know it's like how much is an eleven-year-old Hispanic girl from a poor family worth. You know, I mean, you know, how much is a brain injury for a guy who worked as a mechanic who got beat up at, a, you know, or, and so these, and like, so, so what, what's been, I don't know, there's this guy named John Campbell. I don't know if you know who he is out of Denver, but he's like a big data research guy, but all three of those cases, they did these big data focus groups. Cause I'm like, Clagett, how'd you come up with 60? Cause he asked the jury for 65 million. I go, how'd you ask, why, how'd you come up with that number? You know, that seems like a lot, you know, compared to what, you know. Wrongful death goes for in general, right? You know, people settle cases for seven, 10 million. That's, you know, $10 million. That's, you know, and he's like, I just did a big data focus group. That's what the number came back at. So that's how I got my value. And that's the same thing Eric Fong did. And that's the same thing Christian Morris did. Actually, Christian's came back at like 39, but, you know, for some reason she wasn't comfortable with 39. She said 31. Could have got, I'm like, you guys cost yourself $8 million. But anyway, so it's, and, and like, and so the new way that people are trying to figure these things out and get better research, it's just, to me, it's just like, it's amazing. It's amazing where, uh, you know, where I guess that the level of advocacy, the different things that people are doing and just, you know, working on getting better and better and better. And uh, it's just, it's exciting too, you know, especially because people are collaborating a lot more and really, you know, sharing. And it's, I meant like when you said to me, like, you know, what's Trojan horse? What is this without giving any proprietary secrets? And, and I used to think there was proprietary secrets, but I don't think there is anymore. I think that, you know, that if you just, whatever it is you're doing, if you keep sharing it, doing it, and then other people learn, and then they innovate from there. And it kind of makes it better because you have this collaboration of people that are giving like positive flow of energy and not being like, oh, this is my voir dire. This is my secret sauce. And only way you can have it is it's like, here, it's like, do something with it. This is just a blueprint. It's just a little, it's a little um, pattern frame to get you started, but then take it and do whatever you want with it to, to make it real for you, I think is what, you know, it means that is, is, is everything to make it real for you. I was interested in what you said early on about structure of a closing. Uh, I know there's a lot of different uh, 
kind of formulaic structures for openings. And over the years, I've developed one that I like for opening. Closing, in my cases, I've always, it's always been sort of unique case by case. So I'm interested in the concept of a structure for a closing. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, you know, like I was saying that I'd seen like, you know, from the, from the Panish firm, a similar type structure, but, you know, I think that from what I've seen that, you know, most trial lawyers end up and it's about trying to reconnect with that jury, empowering the jury, and then, you know, taking it, depending on admitted liability, contested liability. But, you know, there's so many things that I see that are, you know, counter like teaching, like so many people, the vast majority of people, you know, talk about their plaintiff early on, just briefly in their openings. Whereas that was always like, don't bring that's, you know, you know, this attribution theory, whatever the hell you call it, you know? And so, and so that's something that I've seen that's been kind of like contrary to what maybe what the common thinking is and, and, you know, and just like the whole, and so I don't really, you know, every structure is different, but just seeing the different structures, I could kind of see how they did it at the Panish firm. And, and the thing that always like, that's on a side note that like what always kind of blows my mind is, you know, how people talk about money. And whether people mention the, a, a specific number in the opening statement or, or if they just say millions and millions of dollars. And you know, I think it's real case by case because when you have a, you know, for example, like this wrongful death. Well, that's something that's so incomprehensible, the loss of a child that, you know, that anybody would say is priceless. And so, the, the, you know, the, the challenge of a trial lawyer is it's getting a jury to put a value on that which is priceless, on that which nobody would ever exchange for money, but having to put a value on it. And so how you talk about it, because if you have like a soft, you know, like a brain injury that you can't really see, you know, and the guy looks normal as hell right there, and you tell the jury you can ask for $30 million, I think you're going to get a lot more pushback than if you have a death case or if somebody's in a, a paraplegic. And so therefore, it's just like, it's a loss so great that, you know, you're not going to get resistance. Whereas, you know, in most of these cases, and I think in general, what I've seen for people is like, it's just saying, you know, the jury, you know, ask you a verdict in the millions and millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars. So at least they know it's a really big number. So you can see who the resistant ones are. But that way, it it kind of allows them to try to figure it out too. And so, you know what I mean? So you're not going to get any pushback and they're just going to be like, oh, you know, and, and kind of looking at the evidence. They know it's about the money, right? They know it's a lot of money. But this way, they're kind of getting the evidence together and thinking about what that number is going to be. So that way, at the end of the end of the end of you know in the closing, you know, and because like Brian Panish is always like you know, let us come reason together or something like that. Does that sound familiar, Rahul? We show reason together, but you know, so when you give them your number in closing, it's like, folks, this is what I think the number is, you know, or folks, you know, I know you've been paying close attention, taking notes, and you know, you're thinking about what's the value of what was taken, and and you know, and I know that you know you probably all have a number in mind and and a reason a reason for these numbers, uh, you know, for this value. And so let me give you my number and let me give you the reasons behind it. And maybe some are the same and some are different. And then you can each go back there and, and, and reason together and say what your number is and what your reasons are behind it, you know, and then that way you can come up with a proper value. That's just something like that. I don't know, but it's like when you leave it open-ended like that in the most cases, now some of these bigger cases now, you know, like, you know, with, you know like Sean's case, asking for $65 million in the voir dire, in the openings, you know, it's just, you know, so there's all these different tactic techniques and tactics that people use is really quite fascinating to me. So what's happening next, Dan, I'm, I'm wearing your shirt right now, trial lawyers university. Yes. So through case analysis, you've had the opportunity to have a number of trial lawyers from all over the country come in. Uh, a few of them were actually, on the Elevate podcast, including Lloyd Bell. Oh, Lloyd's the man. Yeah, he's fantastic. So now we've got something in October, and you're doing a live Trial Lawyers University in Nevada and Las Vegas. Yes. Tell everybody, what's what's the purpose of this? Why is it different? Why did What have you done to make it what you believe better than other CLEs? Well, you know, we just did that program a couple months ago in LA that was, you know, had like you and Panish and a whole bunch of great lawyers on it. But what I realized from that program is that unfortunately, if you take a great lawyer and you ask them to give a lecture, no matter how great they are, it, it gets kind of boring after a little while. I just think lectures in general are boring. And whereas opening statements, closing arguments, voir dire, crosses, 
Now that's exciting, right? And and that's fascinating. And so what what we decided to do was to try to you know take these great great trial lawyers and have them take one of their great verdicts and basically do like live do like maybe a half an hour with a voir dire and, and break down the key pieces of voir dire that they thought were critical to you know getting the right jury either undermining the defense or you know embedding their theory into the case and then maybe you know a chunk of opening maybe a half an hour opening with a you know 20 or 30 minutes of analysis okay why did you structure your openings why did you use your visuals like this you know in order to because in order to kind of tell the opening story and then the same thing with the closing argument you know giving demonstrations and then explanations or analysis because and, and then on, on those cases doing like an hour and a half webinar ahead of time to talk about the discovery plan and the evidence the key pieces of evidence right because every trial lawyer when they, you know, somebody brings you in on a case, Rahul or Ben, let's say a month ahead of time, well, you got to take this whole lump of things, the stuff that they call evidence, right? All the discovery, all the evidence, and think, how am I going to tell the story? What's my voir dire going to be? What's my sequence of voir dire going to be? How am I going to embed my theory of the case into the jury's mind and undermine the defense and get rid of jurors that are not going to give me a chance and create a group of jurors around my ideas? And then how am I going to structure that opening statement? You know, you know, What's the sequence of the information? I mean, that's what great trial, that's the art of being a trial lawyer. And so I think the more that people can see the art and, and see that trial lawyer up there being the trial lawyer instead of just lecturing, it, it's a different experience. And the reality is that, you know, that by, by seeing it and being there live and present, it's like you, you start to, to understand differently. And when you can, you know, because it's, I mean, every case is different, but every case is the same too. And so this way, when you see, you know, how a person, you know, argues damages on a variety of different cases, it's like, it gives you a much better idea how to do it. And so instead of having the, those, there will be a few lectures, but most of it's going to be a case analysis format where each lawyer is going to be given two or three hours, you know, to kind of break down. I mean, to do the act, not break down, but go through actual openings, closings, or, you know, if they want like a key piece across. But to really teach the highlights of that case and how they put it together and, and all the whys behind it. And, and, I, and I just think that it'd be so much different than anything I've ever seen before. And, and it's such a better learning experience. It's so much more enjoyable than, you know, than, than a lecture-based format. And, and, and also like giving lawyers that are the great lawyers the amount of time they, they, they need to really teach something instead of just getting up there and just, you know, giving a lecture they've given five times before because it's easy and like, you know what I mean? It's like, they already got the PowerPoints, they got it all set up. This is like, you know, something like, this is their dog and pony show. It's like, I wasn't looking for that. I was looking for something unique, something to really like impact people. And also, cause I wanted to make great content so that the people that can't come, that, you know, I could take this great content and replay it as a webinar. And so people will get the benefit of, of, of at least, they're not gonna get the same experience as being there. It's like this program we're doing this weekend you know, with these great trials. And then Rex Paris got his $120 million verdict with his son, Kale. And, uh, and it says Saturday afternoon, but I'm going to live cast this program. So that way, because I want to see how people like it too, you know? So the more different people that actually watch it, then I can call up and say, what did you like? What did you didn't like? What can we do better? Because it's kind of like a, like a test run for Vegas. Because I want Vegas to be, you know, I want to be the greatest trialers event that ever was. And, you know, and, 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 and by, by doing this little preparation thing this weekend, it's going to give us a good, you know, idea of, of what is going to work best in Vegas. A little test drive. And Rahul is going to come by this weekend, hopefully, and give five minutes on the, on the Marathi case so that people are everybody's excited because we're going to have eight tracks too. You know what I mean? So when people have eight choices of what to do, it's like, as a trial lawyer, I'm like, you better bring your A game because like, if, you know what I mean? It's like, you're speaking at the same time as, you know, we got Panish, you know, Raleigh, you know, Mitnick, Dodd, you know, all these, at the same time, people are like, well, I, I can't see everything. I'm like, cry me a river. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's too much good stuff for you to choose from. Figure it out. Or, you know, good news is it's recorded. You can watch it later because I'm going to give everybody like a free month of like the on demand. So that way anything they missed, they can watch. And, you know, they want anybody being angry when they leave Vegas after we have our big time. So 
that's kind of and I, and it's going to be fun too. You know what I mean? Because like I think the exhibit hall needs to be a fun place. And so we're going to set up like ping pong tables, cornhole, connect for things to get people interactive and get them more connected. Because, you know, so many people go to these conferences and they don't really meet many new people. If they're not really naturally outgoing people, you know, they kind of stick to themselves and it's not that fun for them. Whereas if the more stuff that you can do to get people to get connected and, and like we're doing all these work groups too. So I've set aside 14 rooms, like breakout rooms. So like Nick Riley with his trial by human is going to do him. They're going to do four you know, workshops, like constantly for like eight or 10 people throughout the conference. Roger Dodge teaches cross-examination workshop for, you know, Friday and Saturday, you know, for three and a half hours for each group of students. Um, you know, what Brian Brighter's doing improv, um, you know, so all, and like Rahul, you and Sonia Chopra, I can't remember what you guys are teaching up, but like Joe Fried's teaching, you know, framing your trucking case for eight students. They bring their trucking case and they're going to meet like a month before and, you know, kind of get to, you know, look at each other's cases when people know each other's cases, they get up and actually present three or four minutes on their liability, three or four minutes on damages and kind of brainstorm the cases together. So I think that's going to make it different too. So, you know, cause people really like participating and being a trial lawyer is a participation sport. It's not like sit on your ass and <laughs> philosophize. You got to get up there and do it, man. You got to do it well. If you want to be a winning trial lawyer, instead of just, you know, a trial lawyer. So that's how it's going to be different, I think, Rahul. That's fantastic. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. One last thing before we wrap it up. You talked about content. You've got a plaintiff, lawyer, only protected uh, website with all of the presentations on it. Where can people join and, and access your, your content? Oh, everything's on trial, trial lawyersuniversity.com. And we just redid the website, Rahul. You're not even going to believe it. Yes, look at that. Can you see this all right? Oh, there's a good-looking guy to the right. Not the far right, just one from the right. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's, a, that's my new uh, – I'm, really I'm really happy with my new website because then it has like, the, has like the TLU On Demand, so all the past programs, TLU Vegas, you know, the webinars, and then like the workshops. And then at the bottom, it has to be changed, but it should be, you know – so then if I do a little pop-up program or one-off program, so we're, we're, we're getting better with our, our, uh, our navigation. I used to have like four different websites. I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. There's no synergy of four different websites. Anyways, so that's where they can find it. TrialLawyersUniversity.com is where everything's at. Well, thanks, Dan, for, for making trial lawyers all across the country better lawyers by uh, making all this content available. And thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks, Dan. This has been really great. Really appreciate your coming on. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E dot net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.